Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Last week, the Supreme Court heard two cases, Biden v. Nebraska and the Department of Education v. Brown, concerning the legality of the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan. Regardless of what you think of student loan forgiveness, these two cases are among the biggest education lawsuits of the decade, and they have the potential to shift the course of American higher education. To make sense of the complicated issues involved, I invited two of my AEI colleagues, Beth Akers and Adam White, to join me on the podcast. Beth Akers is a senior fellow at AEI, and she's the author of Making College Pay and the co-author of Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt. Adam White is also a senior fellow at AEI, where he focuses on American constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state. And Adam is co-director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Beth, Adam, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much for having us, Nat. Hi, Nat. All right. So this podcast is about the big court case, two court cases, but we're going to call them case because that's what they were heard as essentially. Beth, to get us started off, for those who haven't been paying attention, what is the Biden administration's loan forgiveness plan? Yeah. So in August, we had a big announcement from the White House saying that the president planned to cancel a huge sum of student debt. The values depend on whether or not you were eligible for a Pell Grant when you were in school. Those students who came from less advantaged households were eligible for up to $20,000 in loan cancellation and everyone else eligible up to $10,000 in loan cancellation. This is estimated to cost close to half a trillion dollars and really just change the course of student lending in a very fundamental way going forward. So, Beth, this is a big case, and I know you did just say half a trillion dollars, so there might be an obvious answer to this question, but what would you say is at stake in this case? Well, of course the dollars, but that's sort of the easy answer. The thing that I worry about the most is how this changes incentives for both student borrowers and institutions. So something we worry a lot about is that institutions are raising their prices year after year after year faster than prices in any other major segment of the economy. So this notion of tuition inflation, how are we going to rein that in? This pushes in the wrong direction on that, because what we're doing is saying to students, when you borrow to pay for school, mm, you don't really have to pay it back. So don't worry so much about it. And so we're going to get people behaving like that is the regime that they live in. Um, if my child were going to school tomorrow, I'd be much more willing to, you know, uh, co-sign them borrowing through the federal loan program. Not literally co-signing, but I mean, sending them off to borrow through the loan program and borrow bigger sums than they would have before because there's a good chance they're not going to pay it back because this is the new political reality. In that world, institutions really have no reason to keep prices low or in line with the value that they provide because their students, the people who are buying the service that they're selling, aren't really going to have to pay for the entire price anyway. So to me, this is the fundamental problem that we have with all sorts of these blanket loan forgiveness programs that have really become um, in fashion in the past you know, five years or so. So I get that. It, it sort of addresses, well, some people have some debts and those debts can be a struggle for some of them, but it doesn't necessarily get to root causes. Adam, you can't just kind of show up at the court and say, I don't like this. 
What is the issues that the court has to stare down in these suits? Well, I have to say uh, Beth's answer for what's at stake was pretty scary, uh, but I'll try to one-up her and say what's at stake (laughs) is uh, American constitutional self-government and the rule of law, uh, the way that we go about interpreting and applying uh, the laws that Congress has passed. So there's a huge fight, of course, around the meaning of the the HEROES Act, and we'll get into that. But uh, Nat, as you point out, there's sort of an issue before all that, which is whether the court should hear the lawsuit at all. Because just like the rest of government, uh, the judicial branch is one of limited power under the Constitution. The Constitution gives the Supreme Court and the other federal courts power to hear certain cases and controversies. Those are the words in the Constitution. The Supreme Court isn't just sort of a free-floating constitutional review board. They decide actual cases. Uh, And the way that the courts has interpreted that scope of its authority for the last several decades Mm -hmm. has been in terms of what we call standing. Justice Scalia was the one that really sketched this out a few decades ago. Uh, He and the Supreme Court uh, have made clear that if you want to bring a case in federal court to challenge a federal law or regulation, you have to have standing, which means you, the litigant, the plaintiff, have to show that you are injured in a specific, real concrete way that's particularized to you and that it's an injury uh, that's caused by the the entity that you're suing and it's an injury that the court uh, has the ability to to remedy. And so the question in this case, uh, more specifically, is whether either the state uh, of Missouri, which has brought a lawsuit, or some private litigant, uh, some private parties, uh, some some borrowers, uh, whether they've suffered an injury that gives them standing to sue. And so first we got to get through standing and the standing is a pretty sticky wicket here. Like Adam, we shouldn't really look at these standing issues as if they're just bothersome, like unimportant issues, right? Like, I mean, these are real questions that, I mean, they bear on this case, but they also just kind of bear on how the court operates. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I mentioned Scalia before he was a justice. He wrote an article on uh, why standing really is part of our separation of powers. Right, the Supreme Court should only be deciding genuine cases and controversies in the constitutional sense, and the standing doctrine is a way to make sure that the court decides real cases without just becoming, like I said, sort of a free-floating committee of judicial scrutiny. And so in this case, the state of Missouri has alleged that an entity called Moella, and I've momentarily forgotten what Moella stands for, M-O-E-H-L-A. It's a a financing entity that's separately incorporated from the state. It's a separate legal entity in many ways, but it does pay back funds uh, sometimes to the state, although as I understand it, maybe not recently. But Missouri's argument is that the, the new Biden student loan forgiveness policy will cost Missouri money because it will cost money uh, for, for Moella. And so in that part of the cases, the justice has really scrutinized how closely attached is Moella to the state government itself? How plausible is it to say that this policy is costing Moella money and that in turn, that loss will be a loss to the state itself? There are questions about why Moella itself wasn't the litigant rather than the state attorney's general office and on and on. Separately, there were a couple of borrowers in, in the case uh, of uh, Department of Education versus Brown. Uh, there was Myra Brown, who was not eligible for relief under the Biden program uh, because her loans were held by commercial lenders, and Alexander Taylor, who was eligible under this, the Biden policy for $10,000 in loan forgiveness, but not the full 20000 that others received 
those two litigants said that they had been deprived of procedural rights under administrative law and under the, the laws binding the Department of Education. They said they were injured by the Education Department's failure to have a full notice and comment process for this policy, and that that gives them standing to challenge the legality of the program as a whole. And for that case, uh, the justices, especially, say, Justice Kagan, raised real questions about whether the kinds of procedural injuries that those private litigants are alleging is enough to challenge the constitutionality of the program as a whole. I, I would be very happy to turn this podcast into the uh, the happy standing hour. I love this stuff. Um, for what it's worth, I think uh, the state standing might be the more likely vehicle if there is uh, standing as a whole. I had some questions myself about the procedural standing arguments that were raised here. Um, but we shouldn't take for granted that the court will decide the merits of the case. And like you said, Nat, we shouldn't really brush these things off. These aren't really formalities. These are real fundamental constitutional checks on the court itself that the justices always have to keep in mind before they start pronouncing on the constitutionality of other parts of government's actions. Yeah, there's really two things to think of. And one I just want to draw out, Adam, that you said is, well, if they decide on the merits. So you got to get through standing. If you don't get through standing, then, you know, the ball game's over. You have to get to standing and then you get to the merits of the case. But Beth, you sort of know the background on this case. What should listeners know about why it is so hard to get standing? In this case, I mean, you spend half a trillion dollars, somebody should be given standing somewhere along the line, right? Yeah. So now let me give you my non-lawyerly answer here to contrast Adams. Um, So in fact, the law was crafted very specifically to ensure that nobody had damages that would enable them to have the standing that would allow them to bring the case to the court. Uh, For example, some loans that were issued by the federal government are held by private financiers. That was the the plaintiff that Adam mentioned previously. Um, Initially, the announcement included those borrowers. Everybody who had loans that were of that nature were eligible for the cancellation. But it became apparent really quickly because of the backlash to the announcement that there would have been clear damages to those financial entities that were holding those loans. And the plan was quickly revised to exclude those borrowers from eligibility for forgiveness. So basically, the plan has been crafted so that nobody has standing, which is an incredibly frustrating thing as a non-lawyer to observe. And I'm hoping that, yeah, in the case of the states, that it is, in fact, believed that the standing is sufficient, though I can't even pretend to know whether that's true. Yeah, but what you're bringing up is just so fundamental to understanding sort of the drama behind this case, right? I mean, let's make the program so that we can't go to court. And I'm going to editorialize more than I usually do on this podcast here because I think it's a huge point, right, that if they could have avoided sort of a stay... Then the schedule was, hey, let's start forgiving loans en masse in December. And, you know, if they had gotten away with that timeline, after the dollars go out, there's no like clawing them back in. It isn't like there's a legal justification say, oh, well, we forgave all these loans, but now we're actually going to put liabilities back on your balance sheet. That's not how it works. There'd be mm-hmm. there'd be no putting the genie back in the bottle. And so that's why the stay, whether you like it or not, did get this opportunity for the justices to take a look. Do I have that straight, Adam? 
Yeah, you do, you do. The the stays were issued in order to sort of freeze things in place so judicial review could be carried out. And by the way, just to build on Beth's point, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, the, the standing issues are important and I'm taking them seriously, but like my own editorial comment would be that from the very start, the Biden administration was working so hard, um, you know, pick your metaphor, to, to gerrymander uh, their policy around the initial lawsuits. Um, kids of my generation, in some ways, I, I was reminded of of old episodes of the Dukes of Hazard, watching the Dukes trying to outrun the police. Um, <laughs> and in, in many ways, uh, the, 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 the sort of the ridiculous efforts the Biden administration went to keep writing and rewriting this policy on the fly in such a transparent attempt to evade judicial review really was, you know, as much as anything, a clear signal to anybody who's watching that something really dubious was going on here because an administration with any real confidence uh, in the legality of its program would have just made the program from the ground up, made it in a, a clear and sort of forthright way, and then would have gone to court. But the fact that the administration kept changing its story, kept changing the law on the fly, it really revealed its own doubts about what it was going to face in court. And also, I think, exacerbated a lot of the concerns by, say, Chief Justice Roberts, especially, but others, too, over the procedural irregularities that seemed to plague the entire process from the ground up. Roberts made very clear throughout oral argument, I guess we'll get to this later, but this is no way to run a country. Right, making up such an enormous policy on the fly and constantly changing it uh, on the turn of a dime. Yeah. So just a quick commercial. You all out there can go on uh, YouTube or you can get three and a half hour extended cut where you watch the full arguments. I mean, I had to listen to it or chose to. So I think everybody else should as well. But actually, it's very fascinating. There's too many issues to come up with, including uh, I think it was Gorsuch who was talking about the stay and saying, really, one judge can just take one plaintiff and stay a huge national program. And all this is sort of involved in that. But I think it's time to get past the standing issue, fascinating as it is, to the merits of the case. Adam, this is sort of the logic that Solicitor General Prologar, who was pretty impressive in my view, the logic for the president's authority was, hey, this is not some unilateral, the president can forgive whatever he wants. This is something to do with the pandemic emergency powers. Can you lay out their argument for where this authority comes from? Sure, Nat. And, and by the way, listeners, if you don't have 17 hours on your hands to listen to oral arguments or whatever it was, uh, the transcripts are also available uh, on the court's website. But this entire case centers around a, a provision of the, of the U.S. Code 20 U.S.C. 1098 BB. Uh, it's a simple, straightforward provision that says, uh, quote, notwithstanding any other provision of law, unless enacted with specific reference, the Secretary of Education may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title Title IV of the Act. So there you have it. The Secretary can waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student loan program. The administration, and before this lawsuit, they preceded it with a, a memo from the Justice Department and I think a memo from the Education Department's General Counsel. They argued that under current circumstances, in light of the recent pandemic, this legal provision, which was part of the post-9-11 HEROES Act, entitles the Secretary of Education to not just, say, modify or forgive loans one at a time, 
uh, or even just do what uh, I guess Beth would know better than me, but the, the Trump administration before the Biden administration had had done some forbearance on uh, payments and maybe the accrual of interest. So sort of tinkering around the edges of these loans. The Biden administration says, no, in addition to all of that, the Secretary of Education could just do this at a wholesale basis, forgiving thousands upon thousands of dollars of debt. And at first glance, you can make an argument of that from the statute. And frankly, Justice Kagan seemed to think that's a pretty compelling argument on its case. The conservative justices, by contrast, uh, were much more skeptical. Their argument being, we have to read the statute in, in a reasonable way in light of the statute itself and the constitutional system undergirding the statute. And the Biden administration's reading of the statute really strains any kind of credulity of a normal reading of a statute. And, and draws into the administrative agency sweeping powers that Congress never really intended the education department to have. I want to build on what Adam just said, too. And I'll, I'll leave the interpretation of the statute to Adam. That's his specialty. But, you know, it's worth noting that in order to have this authority, the administration has to contend that there's a national emergency happening that is making borrowers worse off than would have been otherwise. It's really hard to make the case right now. I mean, you know, we are on the, the tail end of the COVID economic crisis, but for a long time, we've been at record low unemployment. We know that levels of poverty were diminished during the COVID period because of interventions. And if anything, during the repayment pause, which is two and a half years long now, the super inflation that we've been seeing during this period has eroded the cost of repaying debt. So, I mean, the interpretation of the statute aside, the idea that we have the crisis that would justify use of this statute, I think is really questionable, at least to me. Yeah. Beth, I should have, I should have added the second part of the statute, which is exactly what Beth is getting at. After the lines I quote, um, the statute adds, uh, these waivers may be as secretary deems necessary in conjunction with a war or other military operation or national emergency. Uh, and again, this was part of the post 9-11 Heroes Act. So it's not it's not just, you know, that Beth is, is identifying sort of a good reason for waiver authority. This is itself the limitation of the statute. It requires uh, a war or military operation or national emergency, although the sort of complicated by the fact that it says the secretary deems it necessary, which the secretary, the education department would argue, well, the secretary deemed it necessary. And that's the end of the conversation. Uh, the justices, though, seemed much more skeptical uh, and, and much more uh, eager to, to press the secretary to really connect the actual loan relief to actual impacts of an actual emergency. Mm -hmm. And it's totally conceivable that a pandemic would be an event that would trigger this sort of authority. It just so happens that the economic circumstances that we're in are not such that we can really make the case that borrowers are worse off today than they would have been in the absence of, of that event or in absence of that crisis. Adam, there's a, a legal, I don't know if you call it a question, uh, that needs to come in here, and that's the the major questions doctrine, right? That seems yeah. to kind of get to play in here. Uh, what is that angle on this case? Well, so this new pair of lawsuits is coming to the court at a moment when the court has, for now a few years, been really rethinking the way that it goes about statutory interpretation in light of agencies sort of sweeping assertions of new power. So here's what the major questions doctrine is. Uh, it came up uh, about a year ago in a case involving the EPA's assertion of power under the Clean Air Act 
to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Before that, the OSHA vaccine mandate, the CDC eviction moratorium. And even before that, it was coming up in other Supreme Court and lower court cases involving environmental regulation, net neutrality, and other things. The basic doctrine is that the court says, while we normally give deference to an agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute, we're going to be very, very skeptical of an agency's sudden discovery of sweeping, unprecedented power in an old statute. That we're going to read the statute skeptically, or we're going to read the agency's interpretation skeptically, uh, and we're going to presume that the statutes don't contain these sort of long hidden powers. Uh, we'll only affirm the agency's interpretation if it really is clearly authorized by Congress. The roots of this doctrine go back years, even decades. They go back to Supreme Court cases from the late 1990s involving the FDA's assertion of power uh, over tobacco. It, it goes back to interpretations of the Clean Water Act and the Telecommunications Act. But in the last year, it's really become one of the most salient doctrines in the Supreme Court. Uh, and so this case had major questions doctrine written all over it from the very moment that the Biden administration began to even muse about doing this sort of thing. And Beth, there's something here that's like particular to the student loan portfolio, right? So Ed is in charge of this federal student loan, direct loan portfolio. And it's sort of different from these other things that Adam was talking about where regulations might have outsized impacts because, well, it's a pretty big portfolio that comes out of the U.S. Treasury. Can you give us just a quick primer on how the student loan portfolio works differently in terms of the presidential administration having control over so much money? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge program. Our last measure, I think it was something like $1.6 trillion in outstanding debt. We mentioned previously some of these loans were held by private financial institutions. All newly issued debt is really a liability or an asset of the federal government. So they're self-financed. Department of Education was never intended to be an agency that would oversee this level of consumer debt, but has become the de facto portfolio manager of this outsized pool of questionable ass- questionable and deteriorating assets. So I'm less familiar with the other programs, but you know, I'm hearing a lot of people say things like, well, you know, there's really no fiscal impacts here because these are the government's own dollars. I guess I probably don't have to say to most people who are listening to this podcast that that's not the case. Um, any foregone revenue that comes from interventions like this is, is absolutely a cost of taxpayers. So, yeah, it just strikes me exactly that the Secretary of Education is sitting on $1.6 trillion. And if you forgive a good chunk of that, well, you are kind of spending the people's money. That's how I look at it and and many others. Um, Let me ask you this. Prelegar said, hey, look, part of the damage here isn't just that people are worse off, but that there's been this payment pause since the beginning of the pandemic. And then when 43 million people all of a sudden owe more money, that there's going to be people that are going to be cast into default and delinquency, and that's going to harm them. Beth, what do you make of that logic as far as this is the animating premise for forgiving up to $10,000 across the board? 
Well, I'm split on this one because, in fact, I think it's correct that you're going to catch a lot of people in default when you restart this program because we have people kind of sitting on the sidelines forgetting that these decks exist, forgetting their logins to the websites for the servicers, things like that. And so just logistically, we're going to have some defaults as this program gets restarted. And so whether or not that's sufficient and tied to being driven by a crisis and then, you know, rises to the level of giving the secretary authority to do this. I mean, that feels like a stretch to me. (laughs) But I mean, again, that's not a legal analysis, but it just doesn't quite pass the sniff test for me. Adam, on the hero's justification, when you look at this legal, there's a lot of people who will say, well, the pandemic sort of seems like it's over and the president is planning on ending the state of emergency on May 11th, which would be before any forgiveness goes out. So I see that sort of the tenuous link that you can argue about from sort of a non-legal perspective. What about from the legal perspective? Does HEROES actually justify this because of the pandemic emergency? And how long might that extend, again, from the justice's perspective? That's a great question. And frankly, it's one that the Justice Department and, and Ed were grappling with from the ground up. As I mentioned, the Department of Justice put out a long memo before the policy was was enacted, sort of grappling with the legal justifications for this kind of, of loan waivers, loan forgiveness, and, and the Ed Department did too. And, and I wrote about this a little bit for the dispatch right when the policy was brand new. Uh, when you look at the Justice Department and Ed Department's memos, both really made clear that to justify this approach under the, under the HEROES Act, you really do need to show for the loans that are forgiven a real connection between the financial harms that they suffered in the pandemic and their connection to these borrowers' loans and their financial status. So if the administration had announced a policy that was really targeted in which applicants for loan forgiveness would have to really show that they were themselves directly injured financially by the pandemic and that this loan forgiveness would help to make sure that they are not worse off uh, relative to where they were before the pandemic, then it would be a much better case for the Biden administration. But astonishingly, after the DOJ and the DOE put out those legal analyses, the administration took the polar opposite approach. They just sort of categorically announced these loan forgiveness policies. They made the application process totally perfunctory. Applicants don't have to show real harms from the pandemic. And as we all know, the pandemic and the radical changes to our lives had real harmful impacts. I mean, obviously health-wise, but but also financially real impacts for some people whose, whose jobs were just eviscerated by the pandemic. Others found themselves really not suffering any financial losses and if anything, maybe saving money because they didn't have to commute and, and, and so on. And everybody, even people who benefited financially during the pandemic were, were equally eligible for this loan forgiveness. Uh, and at oral argument, the, the justices pressed the Solicitor General on this point and the Solicitor General urged the court to give deference to the agency, that the agency concluded, the education department concluded, that the most practical way to go about this is on a categorical basis. The, the SG conceded that you know some people who will benefit from loan forgiveness 
really didn't suffer direct financial harms from the pandemic. But you, you have to administer a program. It has to be, you know, a, a reasonable way to administer it. And the Solicitor General says uh, the court should just defer to the, the education department's judgments here. But frankly, the, a number of the justices seemed very, very skeptical that what's happening here is actually connected to the pandemic. And, and one of the last thing, then I'll shut up, but the advocates for this policy, especially folks like Senator Warren, Senator Schumer, who've long been advocating for student loan relief as, as sweeping middle class um, or upper middle class economic relief, they really championed this new policy without tying it to the to the pandemic. All the politicians around this policy really made sort of made clear what they see this as, which is economic relief for favored constituents. And it's been the lawyers who have had to kind of lawyer this up after the fact and and argue that no, no, this really is pandemic relief. All right, I'm going to take a break now and ask you two to make some judgments. This is a section we called "Grade It." Are you ready? Ready. All right, Adam, you're going to go first. And I'm going to go with Iowa coming first in the presidential primaries. (laughs) As an I, as a, as a, as a proud and loyal Iowa Hawkeye, I give an A plus plus with extra credit (laughs) for that wise decision. Fair enough. Beth, being a boy mom. (laughs) A plus. And what do you imagine is the greatest aspect of being a mom to young boys? Oh, well, <laughs> oh boy, this is getting a little personal here. I think it has get, made me have more grace and understanding of all men. <laughs> Fair okay. That's um, terrifying. Yeah. Adam, yeah. RBG t-shirts. RBG, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, yes. T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, great justice, but I'm always wary of the celebrity culture around justices. So I will uh, I, I will give it a D. For form, not content, is what I'm hearing you say. No, that's right. I'd give Ruth Bader Ginsburg high marks for her, her, her career, all, as much as I disagree with so many of her opinions. But the, uh, the celebrity culture around justices is, is one of the, the less laudable parts of American political culture. All right, Beth, eliminating degree requirements for many jobs. Ooh, love it. A++. This is something I'm really excited about. I think that we've got to stop celebrating the bachelor's degree as the only pathway for skill accumulation. Once we do that, colleges, universities lose their monopoly power and we get more efficiency in education. Adam, the clerking system. Oh, that's great. You mean like judicial clerks? I I was very, very lucky to clerk for a great judge on the D.C. Circuit, David B. Centel. Um, now, the system by which the, the students end up interviewing for these jobs in like the open the first year of their legal education, that's a huge mistake that's, that, that happens over and over again in cycles in the, in the, in the judiciary and legal education system. They should hire the, the clerks near the end of their law school careers. But Getting to work closely with a judge and really see the pro- the judicial process from the judge's perspective is a great, great thing. So overall, I'll give it a, uh, a B plus with room to grow. Yeah, it's an interesting and somewhat uncommon sort of professional system. Yeah. Beth, paid parental leave. Oh, boy. Um, 
I'm actually in favor of state-sponsored paid parental leave, not in favor of a mandate requiring employers to offer paid parental leave. All right. No grade there given, but I suppose. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I forgot the game we were playing. Given the <laughs> uh, Adam, Supreme Court term limits. No, anti, 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 F. F, I was, I served on, as some listeners might know, um, I served on President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court, affectionately known by some as the Court Packing Commission. Um, I was against uh, packing the court. And by the end, I was also way against judicial term limits for reasons too many uh, to mention. There are some plausible reasons for term limits. I was actually sort of instinctually in favor of them when I joined the commission. Um, but by the end, I was convinced that the cure would be worse, far worse than any of the, the diseases it would try to remedy. All right, Beth, here's a tough one. Social mobility in 2023 in America. Oh, boy. How about a B? Definitely room to improve. But as Michael Strain has written, the American dream is not dead. Excellent answer. That was a tough one. And I'm going to give you a last and tough one, Adam. The legitimacy of the Supreme Court. <laughs> I feel like Beth got much harder questions. This is like affirmative action for the <laughs> Iowa kid here. But um, no, the Supreme Court's legitimacy uh, is an A, a, a strong A. So don't believe the haters. No, don't believe the haters. Nat's kindly referring to a piece I wrote for Commentary Magazine. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't like the Roberts Court and are trying to talk themselves into a legitimacy crisis around the court. I think a lot of these attacks on the court's legitimacy tell you a lot much more about the critics than about the court. All right. That's a close to that round. Let's go straight into predictions. Beth, I'm going to start with you. I know that you're not a lawyer and that Adam has some advantages on that, but nonetheless, <laughs> for a prediction, what do you think the court rules? Well, I don't know. Can I encourage listeners to like take this with many grains of salt, given my lack of legal expertise? You know, if I had just to go on like the political bias of the court, you know, I would guess that this would get overturned. I'm not sure that's a good strategy, but I think that's what my guesstimate would come down to. And Adam, what prediction would you make? You know, sometimes following the court closely actually makes you less likely to be a good predictor here. But let me just, uh, I'll say, I think a 60% chance, 65% chance that they find that plaintiff has standing. Maybe Missouri, um, hearkening back to an older case called Massachusetts versus EPA, where the court said states in particular deserve special solicitude in their theories of standing. So I think I do think there's a decent likelihood the court will find standing. And if they do, then I, high, high, high likelihood, 90 percent that the court declares the policy to be a violation of the HEROES Act. And Nat, can I just throw one, one more aspect in really quick? Everything we're talking about so far, the, the the practicalities of the program, the major questions doctrine, there's one other thing that's floating around here. It's that this term, the Supreme Court, is grappling with questions about Congress's power of the purse in a way that it hasn't in decades, maybe not ever. Uh, in addition to this case, there's a case that the court just decided last week, I think, that they're going to hear probably in the fall. It's a constitutional challenge to the funding structure for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
And that's between that case and this case, the justices are really having to grapple with the money side of administration, which is anybody in government or anybody who's close to government knows is sometimes the most important aspects of administration. Um, the money that Congress gives to agencies, the money that agencies give to the public, hugely consequential, has always been sort of under-theorized in constitutional law. And so the justices are seeing this case, the, the student loan case, with an eye to this huge fight they're going to have later in the year on other aspects of the constitutional power of the purse. And I think that's going to be looming in the background of the justices' uh, sense of what the Education Department has done here. There was a great brief that was filed, um, well, a couple of great briefs, one by my, my Grace Center co-director, Jen Mascott, on behalf of uh, many, many members of Congress, but also a brief by uh, Professor Michael McConnell of Stanford and others. It caught the attention of George Will, that really put the, the power of the purse aspect of this case front and center. And Adam, just to put a little aside on this, this is the court being asked to sort of do a little bit of constitution custodianship, right? When it seems sort of like the legislative branch and the executive branch may not be pulling their weight on keeping custody of that. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, totally. That's the statutory text we began with. As listeners could tell, it's written in astonishingly broad terms. And that's a recurring theme over the last many decades of legislation. Some of the most important statutes are written in some of the broadest possible terms. And as I said, when the justices go to interpret these laws, they interpret them, the laws on, on the face of the, of the text, but through the lens of the justices' understanding of, of how a constitutional system of government is supposed to work. The major questions doctrine itself really comes out of the justices' wariness of these broadly worded statutes, also the justices' wariness that administrations can make and unmake law on the fly in a way that really makes governance unsteady, unpredictable, pretty disreputable. Um, all of that is the atmosphere surrounding this case. And it's, I think the justices' opinions, they'll, they'll be specifically about standing and about the HEROES Act, uh, but they'll also be in a broader sense about what kind of a constitutional government this is. So Beth, I want to ask you one last question to take us out. And look, any listener will kind of get the feeling that the three of us are sort of not really super pro sweeping forgiveness policy. But let's say that the court does find standing and does say, no, this cannot go through. Would you say that that fixes a lot of the problems with the student loan challenges that the country is facing? I mean, if we get a good decision, at least that the three of us would think, yeah, that's pretty good, that then we're set and it's easy cruising? Uh, no, in part because we've got some real fundamental problems with higher ed costs and our financing system that have needed addressing for several years. And second, because this effort really, I think, is part of a campaign against the self-finance system of higher education that we have in this country. So it seems like this is just one of many attacks that will be coming from Democrats to really attempt to dismantle the lending system. Uh, I think that there seems to be a push towards making higher education a socialized system. Um, in order to get there, we need to get away from these self-financing mechanisms that the feds have been supporting. 
Um, so I think that campaign will continue in one form or another. Conversation for another day is what the administration simultaneously announced with this cancellation program, which is the revisions to income-driven repayment, which is de facto cancellation, perhaps even more dangerously because it will happen quietly and without the sufficient hurrah that has come with this issue. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Beth Akers and Adam White. We'll include a link to some of Beth and Adam's work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review and help other people find the show. As always, you can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus. 